Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. What can we learn from Warren Buffett? Okay, let's start with the obvious. Warren Buffett is the greatest investor of our time, maybe the greatest who's ever lived. His refreshing optimism suffused the action for most of the day, at least until we saw President Trump's tweet about a decision on the Iran deal at 2 p.m. tomorrow. And we gave up most of our gains, with Dow inching up 95 points, S&P advancing 0.35%, NASDAQ gaining 0.77%. But look, if we get hit with a sell-off caused by negotiations with Iran, this is exactly the kind of pullback that makes Buffett want to buy stocks hand over fist. You have to understand, Buffett bought his first stock when the Philippines were about to fall to the Japanese, a far more inauspicious time than this one. Buffett's an old-fashioned guy. He believes in progress and he believes in America. So when we hear him speak, like in his fantastic interview with Becky Quick in this, mor- uh, this morning in the wake of the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, he tends to be a reassuring presence. Buffett has made a killing in the stock market over his lifetime, and he's adamant that you, too, can profit by owning index funds. I agree with him 100%. By the way, if you missed Becky's new documentary about Warren Buffett, you can catch it right after this show tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern. It will be rewarding to you. Sure, Buffett's made some mistakes. He's had some losses. But as Joey Brown said at the end of Some Like It Hot, nobody's perfect. Besides, Buffett has far more winners than losers, even as he's always talking about the losers because he knows that failure is a better teacher than success. Now, it's one thing to make a mistake that actually costs you money. It's something else to miss out on a good investment. If you're going to play the game of woulda, coulda, shoulda, it's a game I think is a waste of time to kick yourself over, over great stocks that you missed when your biggest financial regret is well, when your biggest financial regret is that you're going to talk about ones that you missed. Let's just call that a high quality problem, okay? Incredibly, though, Buffett and his 94 year old, you heard me, 94 year old doppelganger Charlie Munger are perfectly willing to go there. These two are so deservedly confident about their judgment, they can actually talk about stocks they missed with a minimum regret and maximum praise for those who created the companies in question, the two most glaring being Amazon and Google, now Alphabet. That said, the hits dramatically outnumber the misses for these two gentlemen. For example, they completely nailed Apple and were able to build up a 5% position in the world's largest company, getting great prices thanks to weakness caused by analysts who mistakenly viewed Apple as a tapped-out, also-ran tech play. Buffett saw Apple for what it is, the consummate consumer products company with the best brand loyalty ever. 
Remember, historically, he likes companies with fabulous brands. American Express and Coca-Cola are two of his largest positions, and he's held on them longer than many of you have been alive, frankly. More important, Buffett was once the largest shareholder in Gillette when it was an independent company. He owned 10% of the company, and he made a fortune when Procter & Gamble brought, bought the Razor Company for $57 billion. That was a lot of money back then in 2005. He sat on the board for, for 14 years. He was on the board. Why does the Gillette connection matter? Okay, Gillette is the company that invented the razor, razor blade business model. You sell them a razor for a cheap price, and then you make it up on the blades. Sadly, Procter Gamble has gone the other way now, charging a fortune for the razor, wrapping in a ton of plastic that the millennials despise, and making the customer chase down non-existent help in drugstores to get a key to open where the razors are kept. I hate that process. That's why many of us have switched to dollar shape. But forget Procter. The crucial thing here is that Buffett probably understands this Gillette-style business model better than anyone else alive. Let's bring it back to Apple. Buffett first bought Apple, uh, as he told us once at CNBC, because he saw a bunch of kids at one of his holdings, Dairy Queen, and they all had iPhones. I think he quickly came to the conclusion that the iPhone was this generation's Gillette. Get enough phones out there, and one day Apple's service revenue stream would kick into overdrive just like razor blades. Turns out that this was the quarter right when Buffett had bought another 75 million shares. Today, Charlie Munger admitted that when it comes to Apple, they were wrong not to buy much more. I like that. But Buffett was incredibly critical of himself for missing Alphabet and for avoiding Amazon, even as he acknowledged that CEO Jeff Bezos is a miracle worker. So how did two of the best investors of all time miss Alphabet and Amazon? I got a theory. I think it's because they don't have iPhones themselves, even though they're the largest shareholder of Apple. In other words, generational thing. While these services, Amazon and Alphabet's Google, worked well on the computers, it really was the rise of the smartphone that sent their sales into the uh, stratosphere. But if you didn't have a smartphone, you were never going to understand this storyline. I'm not trying to be glib here. Without a smartphone, I think that the cloud would have eluded you, too. When you plug into these services, you're plugging into a data center uh, where the cloud resides. There's simply no way you can comprehend the worth of these companies if you're not actually plugged in. To a guy like Buffett, who's very well-versed in retail but not that well-versed in tech, Amazon probably looked like just another retailer. The big three cloud companies are Amazon, Alphabet, and Microsoft. They, uh, in that case, it's the Azure, which uh, he also regretted missing. There's a fourth that's gaining importance but seems to be buried within an incumbent business that obscures it, the IBM cloud. I think if Buffett had realized how close IBM is to getting its cloud and cloud-related divisions to account for more than 50% of sales, he might have been more inclined to hold the stock rather than selling it like he did. That's especially true as he cites Apple's massive buyback as the second most important reason why he likes it. Well, he said the same thing about IBM and its gigantic buyback, which I think the company did in part to please Buffett. They liked the fact that he liked that he kept owning more and more of the company as they bought back. It was unrequited, though, and sometimes I wish IBM had just taken the plunge and bought a cloud king like the ones we talk about, Adobe for cloud commerce, ServiceNow, and Workday for transforming internal operations on the cloud, Salesforce for customer relations, Splunk for data. Analytics, New Relic for cloud support, VMware and Red Hat for cloud onboarding. All these two and three word epithets are ridiculously shorthand for their prowess. And I beg you to learn more than just the buzzwords before you think about buying them. However, I think it's safe to say that Buffett and Munger don't know the cloud. They sure as heck don't certainly don't know the cloud kings. One more reason why I think this move is still in the early innings. Now that Buffett sold his position, I wish IBM would set its sights on acquiring a cloud prince. 
either a cloud purchasing provider like Coupa Software that we just hit on, I thought was such a good story, or designer of enterprise cloud platforms like Nutanix. Wow, red hot. Again, short end for cloud abettors, cloud, uh, cloud you know, companies that help other businesses get the most out of the cloud. New Relic of the Kings and Coupa of the Princes are small enough, $4 billion and nearly $3 billion respectively, to leave Plenty of room for IBM's buyback if it buys these two, albeit at a slower pace. But either would send the all-important strategic imperatives division over the 50% barrier and make them look much more attractive to most tech people. Here's the bottom line. Because neither Buffett nor Munger used a smartphone, they ended up failing to spot some amazing opportunities. Orderly, I would never, ever bring this stuff up. But they went there themselves, so I thought it was fair game. I would have been happy just to praise their brilliance, but if you're going to admit you made a mistake, I think it's fair for someone, might as well be me, to explain why I think it may have happened. Let's go to Edward in Alabama. Edward! Hey, Jim, a big booyah from Alabama. Wow, I love Alabama. How can I help? Hey, listen, uh, uh, I'm a big fan, Jim. I want to thank you for all you do for us. Thank you. Retired guys out here trying to manage our portfolio. My stock is PRU, Prudential, uh, seems very unloved in this rising interest rate environment. PE of eight, consistent dividend payer, closes lower on a good tape today. What's up, Jim? Well, I think that you exactly said it. I mean, people think, well, wait a second. We got a rising interest rate environment. I don't see that right now, to tell you the truth. It's got a 3.5% yield. It's incredibly well run. I agree with your analysis. I think it's sweet home prudential. Abe in New York. Abe. Good evening, Jim. Good evening. Root Steakhouse, R-U-T-H, based on increased revenue and earnings, has had... In one year, over a 40% increase in its stock price. Is it time to take profit? No, I think, look, in the end, it's not even a billion-dollar company. It is a really, really good company. It's one of the better of the restaurants. The restaurant stocks are all hot. I would hold on to Ruth's. How about Al in North Carolina? Al! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Long-time listener with uh, my brother Joe and myself. Fantastic. Wanted to talk, wanted to, talk to you a little bit about Home Depot, if I could. Uh, I've been a, a long-time holder of Home Depot. It's down about 3% year-to-date, and it's been trading sideways since February. Uh, with all the turbulence in the market for the past three months, and Home Depot's great coming right into their Christmas time season, as we both know. Right. It should it. Should this be a, a buy for me right this now? This is a buy. I've got to tell you, I want you to buy it and put it away. Home Depot is crushing it. Technologically over lows. I pulled up with the whole Home Depot team last week at, uh, at the uh, Tunnel to Towers charity. I mean, not that they were going to tell me anything other than the fact that Home Depot is a good company, but I didn't need them to tell me that. But I've got to tell you, the culture there is so great, and I just think it's a fantastic company, and I want you to own it. Judy in New Jersey. Judy. Hi, Jim. Hi, I'm Judy. Calling to, I'm calling you because I have a question about CA. Uh, I've been a significant uh, stockholder since the early 90s, and I've seen it go from the 60s to where it is currently. Uh, and all the reports I've read are most often favorably. I know they uh, are reporting earnings tomorrow, and is there any reason that this stock price can't get out of its own way? Boy, I gotta tell you, I candidly, I have not looked at CA in years, but we will look at the quarter and we will come back. 
Uh, historically good company, but that's not good enough. Our viewers deserve more than that. So, Judy, I'm going to come back with more. The big guys missed it. They missed the explosion of Google and Amazon because I think they didn't realize how big the cloud would be. Don't do the same. All Man Money tonight, Estee Lauder can help you look like a million bucks, but is it more than skin deep? I'll see if this Wall Street stunner can keep heading higher. Then, Spotify's first quarterly report as a publicly held company struck the wrong note with Wall Street. But I'm telling you, if the market's listening to the wrong track, and it's an oil company up nearly 70% in 2018 alone. But can Whiting Petroleum have more in the tank? I've got the exclusive with an oil executive. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. What do we want from a consumer packaged goods company anyway? We ask for too much from this industry. Should we be content with a group that's struggling to deliver low single-digit revenue growth? Maybe it's just not fair to hold the food, beverage, and grooming companies to the old standards. Maybe the environment is too difficult for them to deliver solid top and bottom line numbers like we got used to. At least that's what I was thinking until Estee Lauder reported last week and gave us a throwback to the good old days with genuine growth courtesy of innovation and, cap- and captured market share. Bizarrely, this stock's been getting slammed like it- it's at any other consumer packaged goods play as investors didn't like everything they heard on the conference call. But the truth is Estee Lauder's miles ahead of its peers and the stock deserves to be higher, not lower. Ever since Fabrizio Freda took over as CEO of Estee Lauder back in 2009, after spending 26 years at Procter & Gamble, he's been positioning his new company as a global skincare, fragrance, and makeup play with the emphasis on overseas markets. Why not? Freda is one of the few high-level American goods executives who's actually foreign-born. He recognizes that the future of this industry is all about the rest of the world, not the U.S. department stores. They used to be the heart and soul of the cosmetics industry. So maybe it shouldn't have been all that surprising when Estee Lauder put on a top and bottom line clinic and clinique. This quarter, with 13% sales growth, doubled the pace of the broader category and net income up 17%. Freda didn't just foresee that foreign markets, particularly in Asia, would be, crit- would be critical here. He also understood that social media would drive sales, particularly the sales of makeup to young women who want to look their selfie best. Now, Freda spends a considerable portion of his time in Asia sitting down with young social media influencers, trying to figure out what they really want. When he thinks he has the right combinations, he presents them on Tmall, the Chinese e-commerce platform, because there are more than 500 cities where Estee Lauder has no brick-and-mortar distributors. He also figured out that the travel channel, mainly the airport and duty-free businesses, would be terrific places to sell expensive goods aimed at the emerging wealthy classes from South Korea, China, Brazil, and the Middle East. Oh, and he tests every new formula over and over again to be sure it's right, starting small and then blowing it out when it's proven to be a moneymaker. Of course, despite the the towering gains versus competitors, not everything was perfect for Estee Lauder this quarter. After years of extraordinary growth in makeup, the business seemed to have leveled off, a big reason why people are panicking out of the stock. He brought it to our attention, not the the analysts. On the other hand, skincare, a category that had been in the doldrums, took off, in part because younger women started worrying more about the damage that makeup can cause without proper removal. Plus, in the United States, the closing of the bedraggled Bonton left a hole in Estee Lauder's sales that will impact the current quarter. Okay, not, not perfect. And an embarrassing moment 
involvement of the conference call, afraid I had to disclose that some of the claims Estee Lauder has been making about its products were inaccurate, mostly stuff related to its staying power, how long it could last on your face. As they discovered this quarter, well, you know, something's been awry at the company. It's not the end of the world. But the company's about as well run as it gets. So the idea that there was a group of rogue employees who was basically lying to the customers struck a pretty downbeat chord. Uh, Mr. Freda was not too happy. Uh, still, in an era where smartphone cameras keep getting more and more sophisticated, paying for makeup has become a necessity. I think Estee Lauder is riding a wave of selfie-propelled good fortune here. That's why when its stock's getting clobbered after Fata told us that cosmetic growth was lapping some high compares, that's what he really meant by leveling off, I think it was necessary to circle back to you right now and recommend this stock into weakness. Estee Lauder's an innovator and a share taker that's become the best of breed by far in its category. And I would be a buyer, not a seller. Much more mad money ahead, including my take on Spotify. Talking about buyer, not seller. Coming to a hit after earnings. But is Wall Street looking at the report all wrong? Then with crude prices crossing 70 bucks, I'm going to sit down with the CEO of Whiting Pete. That's right, Whiting Petroleum. Break down the company's monster earnings beat last week. And finding out whether this stock has gotten ahead of itself. At Finances of the Future, I'm going to sit down with the head of Bank of America, the digital banking person, to get an inside look into what one of the largest banks in the country sees about its mobile business and where it's headed. She's real smart. Stick with Kramer. The market makes a lot of snap judgments during your earnings season. There's so much information coming from so many different companies at once. It's very difficult for anyone to make an informed decision. I mean, who has that kind of time? Now, when you make snap judgments, you also make mistakes. And whenever the market makes a particularly egregious error, I like to go back and set the record straight. After all, nothing screams buying opportunity like a stock that's been unfairly punished. Consider the case of Spotify, the online streaming service that has revolutionized the music business. Last Wednesday night, Spotify reported its first quarter as a publicly traded company. And if you only judge the results based on the action in the stock, you would have thought that these numbers were horrific. Over the next two days, the darn thing lost $15 and nearly 10% of its value. Ouch. So how bad was the quarter? It must have been terrible, right? I mean, what did Spotify do to freak out Wall Street? Well, that's the thing. Upon further review, it turns out this company hit all of its targets it set out for when uh, when it started trading on the New York Stock Exchange a little over a month ago in a direct listing. Think of it as kind of an anti-IPO. You heard me. Spotify got clobbered for delivering in-line numbers. Now, if you believe Spotify's management a month ago at the time of the listing, then this story really hasn't changed at all. But then how do you make sense of this hideous decline? Sell, 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 sell. First of all, as I pointed out when I recommended Spotify right after it listed on April 5th, this is a really unusual story. When fast-growing tech companies decide to list their stock on a major exchange, they almost always do an initial public offering or an IPO, and the IPO process is about making money. Management goes out on the road basically trying to sell potential investors on the value of the enterprise. Then they sell a bunch of new shares to the public in order to raise some cash. But Spotify did none of this. There was no promotional roadshow, no CEO ringing the opening bell at the NICE or New York Stock Exchange, as I call it. No IPO for that matter. The company didn't create new shares to sell to the public. Spotify wasn't trying to sell you anything except stream service. Instead, Spotify did what's known as a direct listing. Basically, they made it possible for their existing shareholders, mostly early investors and employees, to ring the register. 
by selling their stock on the open market. It was the most non-promotional thing I've seen from a major technology company in years, maybe decades. The CEO, Daniel Ek, is the straightest of straight shooters. That's one of the reasons I recommended the stock a month ago. Beyond the fact that Spotify is a terrific platform with a very strong growth story, I like their style, and of course I like the service. But as we saw last week, Spotify's style is not for everybody. So what exactly happened here? Did Spotify really come right out of the gate and disappoint with its first quarter as a publicly traded company? Not quite. The thing is, while a lot of investors acted surprised and disappointed by these numbers, Spotify did its best to tell us exactly what to expect about a month before they reported or a week before the listing. And when we saw the actual figures, all I can say is these guys are very good at forecasting. For example, right before the listing, Spotify said it was aiming for 168 to 171 million monthly active users. When the company reported last week, the number was 170 million, up 30 percent year over year. Total premium subscribers matched and predicted 73 to 76 million. The actual number came in at 75 million, up 45 percent year over year, also at the higher end of the range. And it just keeps going. Spotify predicted it would generate 1.1 to 1.15 billion euros worth of revenues. They did 1.14 billion euros, up 26% versus last year. The gross margin, with the companies left after the cost of goods sold, they predicted 23 to 24%. They delivered 24.9. Earnings, they warned us to expect a 50 to 80 million euro loss. It was 41 million loss. Over and over again, Spotify gave us results that were basically at the high end of the previously announced forecast. So why did the stock get crushed if these numbers were predictable? Well, you may have seen that Spotify's second quarter guidance was substantially weaker than what many analysts were expecting. But management is basically just calling uh, for its turbocharged growth rates to continue. As for the full-year guidance, Spotify simply maintained those numbers. Which begs the question, if this quarter was so predictable, why were so many shareholders disappointed? Well, to borrow a line from legendary film Cool Hand Luke, What we have here is a failure to communicate. Remember how Spotify was the anti-IPO? Well, this was the anti-first quarter. I think there's a cohort of short-term investors who've gotten used to certain patterns from these newly public tech stocks. They expect management to sandbag them with low-ball numbers before the deal so that the company can blow away the estimates right out of the gate. Spotify refused to play this under-promise and over-deliver or UPOD game. The numbers they gave us right before the listing were real, not lowball figures. Management meant to hit those targets, and that's exactly what they did. They're not playing the game. The problem is a lot of people crowded into the stock based on the idea that it would be like every other fresh-faced, fresh-faced tech name. These summer stock patriots expected a blowout, even though Spotify did nothing to give them that impression. I mean, they really didn't. I couldn't believe how unfair this was. And when they merely got an inline quarter, these guys all dumped the stock, all the fast money. Uh, because for any normal newly amended tech IPO, an inline first quarter would be a huge disappointment. But Spotify is anything but normal. The other thing is that during the run-up to earnings, there was a real drumbeat of positive analyst coverage. And while I agree with the bulls here, I think all of those buy ratings right out of the gate may have contributed to the impression that the first quarter would definitely be a blowout. Even if that's not the story the analyst works actually telling. So now that Spotify has pulled back from 170 to 150, what do we do with it? Honestly, I like it even more. Spotify has a great story. It's one of the few services that people will pay for without questioning. And management sounded very confident about their ability to fend off any potential competition in the streaming space. And why wouldn't they be confident? Spotify has 95 million free customers, and that's how 60% of their paid users start out. It's basically a pipeline of potentially a potential paid subscribers. And that's an awful lot of people. More importantly, 
Now we know what to expect. Spotify is run by some of the most honest, straightforward, non-promotional executives I've ever seen. Based on their track record so far, I'm not worried about them missing missing the numbers going forward. Oh, and because Spotify is a European company, they have been getting crushed by the weak dollar as it gets a huge chunk of its business from America. So if the dollar can give us a sustained rebound, and it sure looks like it's going to, that would be a major boost for these guys. But regardless of currency, I think this is a great story. And as for the sellers who dumped Spotify last week... Sell, sell, sell. I say good riddance. They're missing this address. House of pleasure. Bottom line, do not let last week's sell-off in Spotify scare you. The company gave you a forecast before it listed its stock, and they hit those numbers. It just got punished because a, a bunch of investors let their expectations get out of control. To me, that says these guys are incredibly straight shooters. I think that's amazing. I'd be a buyer. Miles in my home state of New Jersey. Miles. Hey, Jim, big uh, Atlantic City stuttering. Booyah. Perfect. Thank you everything you do, big Perfect. Fan forever. What's up? Uh, my question's about Twitter. Uh, it's been taking a feeding recently due to the Cambridge Analytica scandal and uh, infamous short sellers saying they had dirty secrets. Since then, they've gotten great earnings, a ton of possibilities for increased revenue from Disney and other networks regarding live video as well as other programming. Facebook took a slap on the wrist from Congress, and Twitter confirmed it doesn't sell private data. The winner of the analyst and others going to realize the potential of Twitter related to its new video partnerships and bring it to all new all-time highs. All right, well, look, I think you know the Twitter story well. I think Twitter is a buy. I've been saying that ever since the last quarter. Actually, I've been liking it ever since when I suggested that you go long Twitter and maybe leave Snap. I reiterate my leave Snap. Well, they do do have a new CFO. Sounds like he's got some game. Ryan in New York. Ryan. Jim. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Um, I actually just started investing in the markets like a couple weeks ago, but I'm wondering, should I be doubling down on Square? No, right no, 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 Square, it's at 51. I was up two bucks today. We like to buy weakness, not strength. The stock is just flying. I do like the company, but I have to tell you, I think it's got a lot of hot money in it. And we see what happens when you have hot money in it. You do get hurt. Steve in New Jersey. Steve. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Okay. Other. I've been doing a little research, and uh, this the stock Forescout is a licensing company as opposed to a software as a service company. Right, right. Is, but this, we, a, is this a problem, and is the stock still a buy? No, we like it. After we, we absolutely like it. It's one of our, you know, one of our better security plays. Now, remember, we do have other security plays that we do like more, and our favorite is Proofpoint. Gary Steele was on last week. I think he tells the best story of all. I I do prefer that to Forescout. All right, Spotify still spot on, people. The street reacted, I think, very unfairly to its support. The stock is a buy. Much more bad money. And Whiting Pete's been slick with profits in recent months, rallying about 15% just in the past week alone. Does the company have what it takes to keep the monster run going? I'm going to ask the CEO. Then Alexa, meet Erica. I'm asking Bank of America's head of digital banking about the company's new virtual assistant and how it could help you stay on top of your finances. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I'm so done with all these movies. Can I I'm just done say? with you. Oh, I'm so done hard. with you. You're done with them. I'm done with you. Okay. This movie's amazing. Oh, please. 
It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. reaching $70 a barrel today, we need to ask if this rally is sustainable. Can crude keep climbing, taking the oil stocks with it? Take Whiting Petroleum, WLL, the big independent oil producer with hundreds of thousands of acres in North Dakota's Bakken Shale. Remember, the Bakken is not super cheap. That's the Permian Basin. But with oil just under $70, Whiting's practically printing money. The company reported just last week, and they shot the lights out. Whiting delivered a monster top and bottom line beat, and the stock caught fire. No wonder it's up 70% just for 2018, including another 1% today. So are the oil getting overextended here, or does the stock have more room to run? Let's take a close look with Brad Holly. He's the president and CEO of Whiting Petroleum. Learn more about how this company's doing where it's headed. Mr. Holly, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Have a seat. Hi, Joe. Good to see you. And in many ways, your oil company is a little different from everybody else because you have run this company conservatively. You've been trying to get, you don't like to overspend your cash. You've been lowering your, uh, the amount of debt you had, drilling efficiency better. So this is a good time for Whiting, given that oil's at 70, right? Jim, it's a great time. And what we're trying to do is double-digit production growth by also generating free cash flow at the same time. Now, when you use that fresh, uh, free cash flow, it, it seems like that you're all drilling a lot more, but you're also hedging. You've got, what, about 60 to 70 percent of, uh, of your flow hedging. Hedge. So therefore, you think that maybe oil's not going to go to 80, 90? Jim, we think in the unconventional shell development that uh, manufacturing and execution excellence is very important. So the hedging allows us to maintain our production and maintain our activity and generate those results. Okay, talk to me about the drilling efficiency here because it's a rather incredible trend for the last five years. You know, it's been amazing, Jim. We're down almost to uh, single digits now on uh, drilling. We're under 10 days per well. That's incredible. We continue to just drive that down. Double that five years ago? Double that. Yeah. That's just amazing. Now, uh, you have a very novel compensation package. It's tied to the what drilling to drilling rate of return. So how do you measure that and how you do it? Jim, we think that's good business. So we need to be a sustainable business and we need to generate long term uh, returns. And so that's a new metric for us this year. We're tracking it closely, but uh, it helps us to make. Uh, great decisions. Now, you're also, uh, you're kind of, I guess you're upgrading, you're selling some, you're trying to monetize red tail. Just talk to us about how you constantly upgrade your portfolio. Sure. We're always looking for tier one opportunities. We're looking for that uh, 10 to 15 year window of great opportunities to drill as a company. And we're looking for the highest rate of return possible in our portfolio. And so that allows us to be very active in portfolio management and look for those great opportunities. Now, we know the Permian's cheaper than Bakken, but a lot of times it's how you get it to the market, right? I mean, the Bakken's easier to get to the market than the Permian. That's the great thing, Jim, about the Bakken. It's a very established basin now. Uh, 75% of the production goes out on pipe, but 25% still goes out on rail. And we've got both options. So there is excess capacity currently that we're enjoying out of the Bakken. Now, you bought Kodiak, and you did pay a, a high price, but it looks like that it worked out in the end. How is that possible? You know, it's really great. Most of the activity that we currently have today is on the Kodiak acreage. It so is. We, we saw a great opportunity three years ago. Unfortunately, the timing of of when we bought that was difficult with right. commodity price. Right. Uh, but now we're really reaping the benefits of having that Kodiak acreage. So what is your primary goal here? Do you want to continue to redu- reduce debt? I mean, if, the, if you keep going at these trends, you're going to have a lot of cash. What would be the plan? Uh, it's both, really. Uh, we want to grow as a company, but we want to do that at a sustainable 
uh, business. We were all about our profit margin, and so we want to increase activity when we can do that cost effectively. Okay. In the meantime, though, we, we've paid down debt 50% over the last it's, two years. That's amazing. I don't think people realize that. I mean, you were never in, in as much trouble as the stock indicated, right? I mean, from your point of view, but... You had a big hand. You had a good handle on it. We had five point six billion dollars of debt at one time. We're down. <laughs> That's to, too much debt. <laughs> so we're down to two point nine, and okay. we look to continue to pay that back to make the company strong. Okay, so I know oil out five years. The curve is very different. It's in the fifties, uh, right. but it looks like because of the problems that we're having in the Middle East, and we know we get a deadline tomorrow for the president's Iran policy. Do you think all this political activity can spike oil even further than here? Say year end, go even higher. Absolutely, Jim. You do. I think I think that's a great possibility. I think it's going to be very volatile going forward. And and a lot of what can the president? I mean, it's theoretically Iran could shut, could uh, what embargo product? I mean, they could do an embargo again. I mean, what could Iran do that would make it so oil would spike? You know, there's certainly geopolitical events that could happen, but we think the fundamentals are strong. We think inventories are in place. We think demand, uh, one and a half million barrels a day, is strong. We think the supply may have a trouble making up for that demand, and so. Uh, we're bullish on oil long term. Wow. Geez, you really are. Well, you're certainly playing it the correct way, but but you're being conservative. That was a lot of debt that you had at one time, and you're much. I saw your covenants and how things are going. You're still paying it down. You're in good shape. I want to thank you so much for coming on. That's Brad Holly, President and CEO of Whiting Petroleum. They have WOL. They've been doing everything right. They have money's back after the break. It is time! It's over the light of the door! Robert Hurst, one of the same, he said the same. Oh, my God! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, dad, it's over the light of the door! Let's start with Neil Meshes. Neil! Hello, Professor Kramer. How are you? Doing great. Can you educate me on Prestige Brands Holdings? It's just an also-ran company. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm happy to have them on, but there's just not enough special there. You got to go buy a J&J, where at least they got some proprietary stuff in those aisles. How about Arthur in Florida? Arthur. Hi, Mr. Jim Kramer. Arthur. I want to thank you for sharing with your followers and viewers your awesome insight, knowledge, and wisdom. I've done very well since 2005 watching your show. I'd appreciate your insight. Thank you. And your knowledge on CVS. All right, CVS and Walgreens will give you two for both of these stocks. We're down, I think, because Warren Buffett said today that it would only be a matter of months before there would be a CEO named to the Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan, Amazon Healthcare Group. And I think that's weighing on everything having to do with drugstores. How about we go to Sue in Florida? Sue. Hello. Uh, hello, Jim. This Hi, Sue. is Sue in Florida. Okay. And I call you about a stock that I hold. It's called Lending Tree. The symbol is T R E E. You know and what? The, the has, stock had uh, been great, and then the stock got crushed as soon as interest rates started going up. And I've got to tell you, I think Doug Left has done a remarkable job, but the stock has had such a run that I wouldn't mind taking a little bit off the table, honestly. It's just been it's just been a rocket ship since we had Doug on. Let's go to John in Tennessee, John. Uh, Jim, this is John from Clarksville, Tennessee. Uh, okay. I own, a, I own a convenience store in Clarksville. I got my TV on Mad Money ever since you started Mad Money on TV. Thank you. Um, yeah, my question is, uh, what do you think about uh, Valiant Pharmaceutical? Uh, they're going to have their Look, earnings I think that, tomorrow. Look, I think Joe Papa's doing a good job. I mean, it's going to take a long time. They got that big dead whore, and he's turned this thing around. It's a bit of a battleship to turn around, but I think he will do it because he's a good manager. How about Tom in Illinois? Tom. 
Hey, Big Jim. Yeah. A giant booyah to you. Booyah back. I, I've got a question. I have a lot of friends and a lot of family members that have passed on because of cancer. So I'm wondering, do you have any insight on Nectar, N-K-T-R, specifically their 214 and 262? Well, do you think we can turn this around with all the... I, I think people. these are, um, first, I'm sorry to hear uh, about your losses to cancer. This is a uh, highly speculative situation. Um, to me, if you want cancer drugs, I still go with Keytruda and Merck. I think that Merck's a very inexpensive stock. Doesn't have the, doesn't have the star power, but it does have the firepower. How about we go to Matt in Minnesota? Matt! Hey, Jim. I'm Minnesota. Booyah to ya. you. Uh, my stock is Kirkland Lake Gold, KL. Uh, you had the CEO on eight months ago. I'm up 54%. Do I buy more or keep holding? Uh, you know what? I think it's, uh, I would actually take a little off the table. I don't see gold going anywhere right now. And I keep thinking about what Warren Buffett was saying today. And it made me feel like as much as I like gold, uh, if you have a profit in some gold, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking it. How about we go to Paul in New Jersey, please? Paul. A big booyah, Jim, to you from New Jersey. Good to have hey, you. My- my stock is EPR. You still recommend to buy yeah, on that? Yeah, you know, when I was talking with my writing partner, Matt Horwin, today, we see that stock sneaking back, and we decided, you know what? We think it was overly punished. It looks like it can hold in here, and I think that it's probably overdone to the downside. It's making a bottom. It yields 7.5%. Let's go to Fred in Ohio, please. Fred. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. How Booyah. are you doing today? All right. How about you? I'm doing great. Calling about IRM, Iron Mountain, one of Another my one of these that was oversold. These all these different uh, situations that like, REITs have just been clobbered, and, and I think that they're all done. Uh, you know, going down, and that this is well, not all of them. Some of them are in trouble. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. I'm constantly telling you that Bank of America is the best way to play rising interest rates. Its gigantic deposit base means that it can practically coin money when the Fed tightens. They take those deposits, lend them out at a higher rate. But there's another aspect to the story that doesn't get nearly enough attention. See, for my money, Bank of America has the best consumer banking technology around. Their mobile business is taking share and taking names all over the country. And listen, having the best digital platform is a huge advantage. Why don't you go ask Domino's Pizza? Now, Earlier, I got a chance to check in with Michelle Moore, the head of digital banking for Bank of America, the woman who's transformed this company into a digital powerhouse. Take a look. Michelle, every quarter, I see the digital banking numbers from Bank of America, and they are far better than everybody else. What's the secret here? The secret is understanding what our customers want. We listen to them, and we give them what they want, not what we want. So uh, I believe that a younger customer, for instance, mm-hmm. wants ease, right. wants mobile, That's maybe right. even wants voice. So the world is moving to mobile. We had 1.4 billion mobile logins in Q1 alone. Think of that. That's 100 million times 
last week that they're logging into their mobile phone to do banking. That's much different than what you and I grew up with. There was no such thing as mobile, and you drove to the branch. Well, one of the reasons why we did that is because we're old-fashioned. I don't know whether I trust my phone. I want to go to the teller. I want to go to the branch. But this next generation, which you probably want to lock up for life, and there are millions of them, they're comfortable with this. They're a voice generation, so we pay attention to what they're doing. Think of, there's over 60 million households in the United States talking to inanimate objects. And so we know that voice is a thing. And we said, why not in our app? Why not give you something to talk to in the app? Make banking so easy. Do it any way you want. Okay, so what does it mean for the bank in terms of bricks and mortar versus a device that uh, the next generation loves? It's both. So a lot of times people are asking me, is it branch or is it digital? It's branch and digital. It's how they work together. You can choose to do anything you want on the mobile device. And when you want to come in to talk to us about your life priorities, things that are important to you, nothing can replace the human interaction. Uh, Digital mortgage? Digital mortgage. Fantastic. We just launched that last week. So the ability literally to sit at home and on your mobile app, fill out the entire application that used to take you probably hours, 300 some odd fields of information is now 10 if you're a customer of Bank of America. And then once you're done, you can go into the app. It gives you to-do lists. It tells you what we need to help you complete the process. You can e-sign things right on your phone. Uh, You can connect directly to a lending officer if you need to. Everything's right there. How long? How long does it take? How long would it take to complete the application? Yeah, if I wanted to if I have a shot to find out whether I could get a mortgage from Bank of America. Me or you or a millennial? <laughs> all, all right. I, well, it depends. Obviously, it depends on the person's credit line. But right. the ease with which is certainly different from the current way. Yeah, it all depends what you're applying for. I mean, filling out the application should be 15, 20 minutes at most. Then right. the whole process around the credit check and everything else that comes with it. But we're talking days versus what used to take months. Oh, okay. Now, uh, person to person, uh, I always think of uh, PayPal, which is just a terrific company. Okay, mm-hmm. you've got a competitor. Uh, is there room for both? Yes, this is one big ecosystem. We would like to get cash out of the system, Jim. It needs to be about security, ease, send money to you in a quick, easy way. And so all of us, we live together. We're all trying to get a very secure ecosystem for our customers. All right, let me ask you about your background, Michelle, because it's important. I think many people will be sitting here saying, you know what, Uh, that person uh, is just on fire, computer science, obviously, Stanford, who knows, whatever, (laughs) could have worked at Google, could have worked. And that's who I think, okay? But then when I look at your your background's a little traditional for the person who's running digital, right? Mm -hmm. 15 years, Bank of America. I love the company, and I have a degree in economics from Cornell, so I'm not... What did you know about digital? uh, Nothing. But what I did know is I needed to listen to what customers wanted, and that's what's important. So, okay, so that's, all right, that's a great lesson because I think that a lot of people go the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, They have the computer science degree and they try to invent something and they hope people want it. You're about ease of use and you're you're about security and about touch. That's right, exactly. So I have a fabulous group of technology partners and together we build everything that you see that comes out in the mobile app. My angle is all about the client experience. How easy is it to use? Big buttons, beautiful design. Is it so intuitive that anyone can use it. And uh, who is Erica? 
Who is Erica? So, Bank of America, the last five letters of our namesake, uh, very clever of us, but it really is artificial intelligence. Think of the masses. We have 65 million customers. How do we help them live their daily lives, give them information about bills are coming okay. due, or uh, how to better uh, improve your FICO score, things like that, okay. all of that delivered to the masses. Like the one thing that I, again, my old-fashioned, my kids wouldn't say this, but fraud... Yes. And threats. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would think I can't use voice because the voice, they may get it wrong or someone might use my my voice. Put me at ease. Okay. So on the mobile phone, first of all, you have to log into that phone, right? So you right. have to have thumbprint. Hopefully you use fingerprint ID if you're okay. <laughs> logging into your phone. Then when you log into our app, you do it again, right? And so the security is there. The voice is your voice or you can choose to interact with Erica just by texting or tapping on screen. So we've given you choice depending on your comfort level. Wow. Well, I know you guys are well ahead, and I think a lot of it is just because of sheer uh, dint by the uh, and energy of what you've got, because you listen to the customer. That's, That's what we so really right. want. Michelle Moore, head of digital banking, but actually head of figuring out what the customer really wants at Bank of America. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Michelle. Thank you Good so much. You. The analysts didn't like it. They found so many things wrong. They thought it was boring and old. Maybe best days are behind it. But Warren Buffett liked Apple. And you know what? Maybe today that is all that matter. Now, like I said, there's always the bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.